Welcome to MBA Podcaster, the only source for cutting-edge information and advice on the MBA application process. I'm Diana Jordan. A panel of five diverse and knowledgeable guests was assembled by Microsoft on the Microsoft campus in Redmond, Washington, June 18, 2009. This is the second annual MBA panel hosted by Microsoft. The subject is Standing Out Among the Outstanding, Recession, Competition, and Business School Admissions. And the moderator was Chika Akeji, Senior Implementation Strategist at Microsoft. Our event today is really themed around understanding what the nature of competition for business school admissions has become um, and what people can do to improve their chances, make themselves more attractive as candidates, uh, and understand a little bit about what the impact of the ongoing recession has had on the different businesses that uh, play into the MBA space. And we have uh, panelists and experts in a crowd who are going to sort of share their perspectives with this on us, and we hope that that turns out to be useful. I would like just to get into things immediately with um, a round of introduction. My name is Cassandra Pittman. I work for INSEAD, a business school in France and Singapore. My position is Assistant Director of Marketing, and I'm responsible for recruiting MBAs and marketing the MBA program in North and South America primarily. My name is Scott Shrum. I work for Veritas Prep. We're one of the world's largest GMAT preparation and uh, MBA admissions consulting firms. My title there is Director of MBA Admissions Research. In that role, I stay in close contact with all of the business schools around the world, keeping track of evolutions in the programs, recruiting trends, admissions trends, etc. We've been in business since uh, 2001. I've been in this role for about a year and a half now. My name is Barbara Thomas, and I'm with the National Black MBA Association. I am the president and CEO of the national organization. We are a membership organization, and really what we're all about is keeping the pipeline filled of qualified MBAs. My name is Edward Golly, and I'm here with the University of Washington's MBA program. I work with the admissions team. I'm the diversity student coordinator, and in that role, I help to come up with strategies to increase diversity and diverse perspectives on campus in the full-time and evening and all the other programs on the at the business school. I'm also a first-year student, so I can answer any questions with respect to what it's like to be a student on campus as well. My name is Brian Tomlinson. I'm the Director of Employer Relations at the University of Washington Foster School of Business MBA program, and I'm more on the career side. Uh, I do sit on the admissions committee with respect to kind of career goals and that part of your admissions essay, but I've been there at the University of Washington for the last three years. Excellent. The first uh, question directing to you, Scott, Economies the world over are, are really shaken by the recession and you know, a lot is going on that's sort of negative in the news and things like that. What are the most significant developments that have impacted your business? For our business and for MBA admissions in general, it's sort of simultaneously been a headwind and a tailwind. And I say that because the standard thinking when a recession comes is a lot of people go back to graduate school, not only business school, but law school, uh, other professional programs. That has been true this time around. However, there's been some important developments in this particular recession that's made it uh, more challenging for people either to leave their jobs and pursue MBA programs or if they're admitted to an MBA program to simply be able to attend. The biggest one of those is the financial aid situation. And, uh, and actually, Cassandra and I were just at an event uh, in New York City the other day talking to admissions directors from a wide variety of schools. And the number one question that always came up and the first thing everyone would say is, what is your picture with student loans for the coming year, particularly the picture for international students? And that's significant because over the last five years, even more than that, there's sort of been a, an irresistible force of more and more applicants applying to U.S. business schools, particularly from Asia, but not only from Asia, growing in double digits every year. That really changed in the most recent admission season. A lot of applicants simply either chose not to apply or even many of those who were admitted ended up not matriculating because they could not finance their educations, especially last fall when the economic situation happened. Citibank, HSBC were just two of the most prominent, Bank of America as well, pulled their loan programs, obviously 
obviously they had their own issues to deal with at the time. Schools one by one have been able to put into place using their own assets or partnering with other banks new non-cosigner loans that help these international students apply and enroll. But for a lot of international applicants, particularly coming to U.S. schools this past year, it was sort of a lost season. So that's why I say it was a headwind and a tailwind because you had a lot of people who either because they're worried about their job situations or simply, unfortunately, they lost their jobs. They started looking at graduate school. Uh, in many cases, though, the financing situation became a real problem this year, and it actually prevented a lot of people from applying or matriculating once they were admitted. Cassandra, so there's a lot of increased interest in business school um, uh, from across the world. How are schools like INSEAD adjusting to that idea? We have increased our capacity somewhat, and INSEAD was in a, and is in a very good position because obviously our dual, dual campus structure and the fact that we were in a growth period with our Singapore campus it was really well-timed. We wanted to grow the class anyway. We have the capacity in Singapore, so we're not just stuffing more students into the same size classrooms, but we actually have the capacity to, to have another section um, in Singapore. And because the Singapore campus has been open for just over five years now, the interest has grown, and we're moving towards having about 50% on uh, the Singapore campus and 50% on the French campus at any given time, where the, the split used to be two-thirds in France and one-third in Singapore. So we've certainly seen an increase in, applic in applicants, absolutely, and the increase in applicants has far exceeded the increase that, we're, that we'll be taking onto the program. Obviously, we don't want to overexpand. We want to make sure that we can meet the career services expectations that people have post-graduation as well. So we could admit 2,000 people, but if we are not sure that 2,000 people can get 2,000 great jobs around the world, then we're not going to do that. Brian, from the career services perspective, there are a lot of people who are graduating and coming into this economy right now. What do you see as their experience coming out and availability of jobs or internships locally as well as internationally to the extent that it's available in UW? So can you speak to that a little bit? It's tough. I mean, there's really no way to sugarcoat it. it it's hard out there coming out of a full-time program, right? It's, it's really difficult. And I think a lot of my colleagues that I speak with who are doing my role at other universities are, are feeling this as well. I think there is some definitely some differences uh, by sector and also by functional area. I think banking, obviously, as you think, has been a, a, a real big hit. Uh, what we've seen particularly at the University of Washington and the Foster Program, on the intern side, we haven't seen a downtick at all. It's been a, we've had a great year in terms of internship placement. On the full-time side, we'll see a marked probably 30-point uh, drop in pre-graduation placement this year, which we see is probably pretty close to what similarly ranked schools will see. It's been quite difficult. And we see on the evening part-time program, which is our largest program at the University of Washington, uh, fewer students leaving their employers than have in the past, many, much more staying with and not making the career change that they might have hoped to immediately after graduation. Are the people advising potential students giving them a little bit more insight into how to make the decision to go to business school? I'm not sure that the advice that we would give our prospects and people considering an MBA program this year would be any different to what we gave two years ago. Just because money was easier to come by doesn't mean it was any less expensive, and it doesn't mean the decision-making process was any different. So we would encourage um, any prospect to think about the overall return on investment. Now, INSEAD is in a particular situation. First of all, we were lucky because our we are so international and so diverse that our career stats have been very strong this year, much stronger than I think a lot of our, our peer schools in the United States because we were somewhat insulated. We have such a diverse pool of recruiters 
that, you know, sure, banking was down and people coming to New York or, or key cities like London, were, there was a decrease. But a lot of people went to the Middle East. A lot of people went to Africa. A lot of people went to um, Asia where the economies weren't hurt at the same times uh, to such a degree. The other interesting thing about INSEAD is that we, for some time now, haven't had a global loan program. So obviously that was a hurdle for us a few years ago. But we didn't have one to lose this year, which was great, which means that we've been giving the same advice to people and working with them one-on-one -on -one to find local financing solutions and to piece together an INSEAD scholarship and other scholarships and maybe a local loan for some time. So uh, our advice didn't change because we didn't have a loan to lose. Thank you very much. And I would assume that is the same in UW. I mean, you want to add anything to that, Brian? The amount of financial aid dollars that we get um, to give to students, I think, has changed somewhat. But I think that UW is, is different in terms of the amount of support that it gets from the state and the amount of support that we have in our own coffers. And so though financial aid numbers and figures may be lowered, we still have a significant amount of scholarship dollars that we're still able to offer to students as well. So I think that that's where we differ from some of the private programs. Okay, thanks. Scott and Cassandra, there's a trend towards offering admission to people who just come straight out of undergrad and it's increasing or has increased a little bit over the past few years. Is there an equal chance, say, for somebody who doesn't have the work experience to boast of? So we have seen that trend in some other institutions and or some offering a place before somebody graduates undergrad and then they go out and they get two, two years work experience and come back. I believe that's a program Harvard's doing. We really value the work experience as one of the key components to what we look for in somebody in the class. And what we tend to say is if person A is being accepted without any work experience, then they can't expect that their study group and their peers can have it, will have any work experience either. And it really is that depth of understanding and professional leadership that you've been able to gain that allows you to get that three-dimensional value from an MBA program, that off-book learning. So w that's not a trend that, that we're having, and we certainly wouldn't accept anybody without any work experience. And if you come to INSEAD, you won't be in a study group with anyone without any work experience either. The less work experience you have, the larger your undergraduate experience is going to loom when, when you apply. That includes the strength of your coursework as an undergrad, obviously the, the grade point average you've earned, any leadership experiences you've been able to demonstrate while in school. The more work experience you have, the less those things matter because uh, all things being equal, uh, oftentimes schools put more weight on your more recent experiences, particularly your professional experiences. Right now in the press, there's a lot of talk about, you know, what's the value of an MBA? You know, MBA has got us into this mess. And it's interesting that that conversation's coming up right now because as you mentioned, schools such as Harvard, Yale has a, the Yale School of Management has a similar program. They're starting to look at younger applicants and MBA programs do admit people right out of college, and that has become a little more in vogue over the last few years. I wonder what will happen to that trend in the next year or two, because now companies are starting to take a step back and say, wait a minute, these schools aren't exactly turning them out, turning out people who are prepackaged, ready to manage. That is a very real trend. However, given all the conversation in the media and in the business press right now about is the MBA enough, I wonder if that trend will start to reverse itself. It's, I'm just speculating, but in the next year or two, I wouldn't be surprised if that trend slows down or stops even. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about strategies for success. So what are the things that people tend to do wrong consistently? First, has the applicant pool gotten that much more competitive? Yes and no. I don't think that there's a new class of a super applicant that's coming that somebody who's going to be playing so needs to worry about. However, I do think by some measures, applicants have gotten stronger. It's it's easy to put far too much weight on it. But if you just look at even just the mean GMAT score at the top MBA programs, it, it consistently keeps creeping up. It used to be a 780 was a 99th percentile. Now it's a 760. 
we have a, a methodology of Veritas Prep that we call the MBA game plan. And there are really two things that any successful applicant needs to do. One is demonstrate fit with the target MBA program. So show that you would fit in well in the program, exceed, excel academically, uh, fit in culturally, uh, and be a strong advocate for the program as an alum once you graduate. That's the first thing you need to do. The second thing you need to do is differentiate yourself from the competition. Schools rarely operate off of hard quotas, but it's only natural that if you're coming from a certain background, your strongest competition is going to be people from that same background. So I was a white male coming from technology. It was inevitable I was going to be compared against other white males coming from the technology space. So what did I bring to the table that was different? The way an applicant can do that is hobbies, community involvement, passions, things that make you tick, uh, life experiences that have really shaped your outlook on life. Those are all fair game, and admissions officers absolutely want to know about those things. Those are not irrelevant. They want essentially the, the raw materials that they will take and shape into future leaders. So demonstrate who you are as a person, and that's how you can distinguish yourself in admissions officer's eyes. Mostly just to echo your comments, Scott, um, I wrote a blog entry on this <laughs> recently about the importance of really showing what makes you different. There are a lot of brilliant, boring people in the world, and most of the MBA programs don't want them. So really think about what makes you interesting and unique and what your real passions are. And what I always say is if what you can't stop thinking about, what you talk to all your friends about over dinner parties, what you read every article about, what, you know, you just, it wakes you up at night thinking about hedge funds, then by all means, spend every word of your application talking about hedge funds. But if what you're really passionate about is film or yoga or football or contemporary arts, or fashion, or whatever it is, then find some space to talk about that too. Because that, particularly in a, in a competitive year, that's what's going to differentiate you against every other person with your similar experience and profile. And to sort of add on to that, on the admission side behind the scenes, uh, how are the applications bucketed? Okay, so it's not as simple as let's put you in a bucket because the metrics is more complex than that. But we at INSEAD, and I know every school is different. I used to work for London Business School and they had a different process than, than we do at INSEAD. But we have a, a pretty quantitative process. We look for four criteria in every application. One of them is your international outlook. One of them is your leadership potential. One of them is your academic capacity. And the other is uh, what Scott spoke to before, your INSEAD fit and your overall ability to contribute to the INSEAD community, which is everything else that you're passionate about. And so as we read these applications, we pull out things, pluses and minuses, and we actually have a piece of paper that's divided into four blocks. We write them on those four blocks. We score each one. And then we average those scores and give you an average. Now, an application is read by usually anywhere from two to seven people. And so each one of them will do this. And that, that's how we look at it. But it is, it's a very complex metrics. And it isn't just one or two criteria, but it's, it's a lot of different things. Just to clarify, and as Sandra said, it really does vary from one school to the next. They would describe it as it's less about we start off with the buckets and more sort of you're, you're keeping track of the whole and you don't want the whole to become too skewed. Realistically, it's more that as the admissions officer is struggling to get the right mix of students in the class, they're going to get to that 20th white male from technology and say, oh, we really like this applicant, but we're getting really heavy in applicants who look just like him. It's, it's getting harder to admit him. That's usually the way it happens. So they're keeping in the back of their mind that they, they can't let the 
community get out of whack in any one direction. One other thing that I would add is, I know from the University of Washington's perspective, in talking about what's going to set you apart, it's really important to really be able to articulate why you want to go back and get your MBA, uh, why you want to go to the University of Washington, and then also to be really be able to be precise and pinpoint how the MBA will fit into your larger career goals. I also want to ask Brian and, and Cassandra, if you don't mind, are the averages really sort of narrow band averages or are they pretty wide? Even though the average age is 29, the range is 24 to 41. And I, so I think you'll see a, a real wide range across that. On all things, I meet a lot of prospects and a lot of people at the beginning of looking at MBA programs that say, oh, your average year's work experience is six. I have four. Is that enough? I mean, an average is by definition a median between two extremes. And so it's always pretty wide, whether it's the age, the GMAT, the work experience, whatever it is that you're looking for. The most important thing is that you're applying to an MBA program that's right for you when it's right for you and everything else will fall into place. Do the programs communicate with each other, particularly when they ask for the list of schools that the other applicants have applied to? First of all, we do not call up our colleagues at other business schools and say, hey, Joe Smith has applied you know, and he's told us he wants to be a banker. What did he tell you? We don't, and we're not, we wouldn't legally be allowed to. Certainly, that would be contrary to European data protection laws. Nobody can get information about your application apart from us. So no worries there. We ask where you're applying to for a couple of reasons. One is to help us understand what your thinking process is. So are you applying to every school in the top 10? And NCAD's just one of them. Are you looking for a global school? Are you looking for a non-US school? What's, what's sort of the profile? I um, mean, so that we can, we can match that with what are the kinds of things you're saying in your application, your, in terms of your goal set and why you want to come to NCAD. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I think that a lot of schools ask that information as well. NCAD doesn't really give spot scholarships, so it doesn't apply to us, but I believe that a lot of other schools offer that as well because they will be able to gauge whether or not those schools might offer you a scholarship when how competitive you'll be to those other schools. And if they think those other schools, if they really want you and they think you might be getting money from another school, they might think twice about, you know, making sure they offer you some money too if you're one of their better prospects. So write those names down. <laughs> Can we discuss that myth though? Yes, please, please. Some schools, you know, I, I can't speak for Harvard, but some, you know, Harvard might like bankers or, or what have you. I just, I really want to bust that myth. The more different you are, the better your chances for admission are. I mean, there are just some industries where it's more common to do a, an MBA, consulting, banking, et cetera. It's just part of the career path. And so, of course, you're going to get a d disproportionate number of people from those careers doing it. But we have professional actors on the program. We have uh, people in the arts. And in, certainly, they're no less advantaged, as long as the MBA has value for them and they're able to explain that reasoning in their application. So please don't think that you have to have that more common profile. If anything, it's it's the other way around. Just adding on to that, what we always tell our students is that somebody coming from a less common background is definitely not disadvantaged. They just simply have a different set of challenges that they need to meet while they're they're applying. A little bit about sort of the job front. Does diligence in recruiting have a new meaning now under the current circumstances? I mean, what is it that people are doing or that people need to be prepared to do really to go out there and secure these positions, whether it's internships or full-time positions? In this economy, it's even more so. It's It's much more important even than it was before the uh, the networking piece and just going out and doing informational interviews, particularly on a, on a weekly basis, if you really make that a goal and attack it like it's an additional course, 
I think that students that do that, that say, okay, I've got a core of four courses per quarter. I'm going to spend as much time on my fifth course, which is my career, as I do on any of the other four courses. You're going to be in a good spot. And speaking off the cuff, I look back to 2005 and 2006, and we might have taught people a bad lesson then. Because you could sign up for a few interviews and land a good internship and come back in 2006 and you interviewed with a few companies, you got a great job, but you didn't build up your, your network very much with that. And I will tell you anything about the 2009 class. They're good networkers. They've had to, they've had to work so hard at this to get things done. And I will say, even with how tough it's been, that networking pays off. And, you know, Cassandra talked about diverse backgrounds. So one of our full-time students this year, his, for his professional experience for six years, he was on the world kiteboarding tour. He looked under every single rock his personal network and our alumni network had to offer and got into the sales and trading program at Thomas Weisel Partners in San Francisco. And he's an example, I think, of if you can go from the world kiteboarding tour uh, to a suit on San Francisco and sales and trading, I think with the right amount of networking and using not only your alumni organization, your undergrad alumni organization, but you know, your affinity groups like Africans of Microsoft, National Black MBA, I think you're going to be in pretty good shape. If you have two years of lead time, what would you do to prepare for an MBA at the school of your choice? Cassandra, I'd actually like to start with you and just walk the table. I'm going to turn the question a little bit on its head because I actually don't think that you should be preparing and thinking about what kinds of things can I line up in my life so that I can get into business school. Um, I actually think that you should be concerned about developing a life that's dynamic and that you know that you can have experiences that make you interesting that you're interested in and those will be the things that will that I think will allow you to be successful now there are certain things you know at business school that if you if you know you're struggling you'll have to address if it were me going to to business school I would certainly be taking some math classes and some quantitative prep classes because I can barely add. I'm just not good with, with quant, so I know that I would struggle on that part of the GMAT. Apart from that, I would try to travel. I would explore my passions. I would try to meet as, as many different people as I could in my life. It's important, I think, to, to realize that an MBA is, is just one year or two years of your whole life. And, and it's an important part of what you do, but it's more important that you enjoy your life and that you have a rich, varied life. I completely agree with you, Cassandra. Actually, um, a few months ago, I was uh, lucky enough to be interviewed by Business Week. They did a series, if you're four years out, three years out. They interviewed me about what would you do if you had five years out. And professionally, you really want to start looking for opportunities to go outside of your job description and really make an impact on your organization. One definition of leadership that I love, I earned my MBA at, at Kellogg, the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. I remember it was during a job interview and a job interviewer asked me this question and it's like the light bulb went off in my head. She said, Scott, tell me what happened in that job that wouldn't have happened if you weren't there. And, and it was at that moment where the light bulb went off for me. And I said, wow, you're right. That's exactly right. What difference are you making in your organization? Okay. One is what I call the three Ps. Passion, purpose, and power. Beginning to think about, as both as, as I kept hearing the echo here, things that you are passionate about as you sort of began to plan your life's journey. So as you began to develop your journey, <laughs> think about what am I passionate about? What is my purpose in life? Uh, and how can I use those powers? And am I ready to really have that innovative and creative mind 
that goes along with having the MBA degree. One thing that I would do two years out is learn a language if I wanted to come to INSEAD because you have to speak two. The only thing I would add is a, like a do and a don't. Don't quit your job to study for the GMAT. And the only the do I would say that isn't mentioned now is <laughs> figure out a way to organize your contacts that you have right now that you're building and be it by a spreadsheet or by an add-on to Outlook or whatever way you want to do it. Where I think networking fails isn't so much in the handshake or the receipt of the business card, but it's the follow-up and the maintenance of that contact. Having networks is terribly important, but creating friendships is probably even more important, or at least very close acquaintanceships. Just to echo those comments, it's not just about you know whose number you have or who you're connected with on LinkedIn. It's about who you've had a coffee with and about, do you know when their birthday is? Do you know when they've, they've had a child? Have you sent them you know something? And it's, it's just about developing real relationships with people, not just someone's name you know and an email address you have. And that, and that takes a lot of work. That's not an easy thing, but it's, it's something that takes you know, investment of a lot of time and, and energy and, frankly, caring on your part. You, know, you can tell by the way we're, we're spending a lot of time on this how important it is. If you don't mind quickly running down sort of the top three ways that you maintain your network, what are the things you actually do? Yeah, I really try to to make contact by phone with people fairly often. I, it's just it's so much uh, more meaningful than electronic, and especially nowadays. You know, LinkedIn, Facebook, you get like an eight-word message from somebody. It's it's inscrutable. You don't even know what they're saying. Just checking in is so meaningful. I collect an average of a hundred business cards a week. But what I do every, wherever I go and I collect those cards, I always write on the back of the card where I met the person and what I said to them as a reminder. And before I go to bed every night, I will drop a quick note via email to that individual to let them know I acknowledge you. I built a, a spreadsheet and I have a skeleton of it that you can you can download from our website if you look at the Washington MBA program uh, and look under career services and current students. It's not password protected. Not only is it all your columns of how you met them, but on the, the last columns are my out, outreach and is it every three months, every six months. And I can go through that and sort that by date so that I know on that third month, if I haven't heard from that person or the sixth month, I want to drop them a note. And I try to make those unique. I also have an add-in to Outlook called Zobni that I really like. It's maybe an inbox spelled backwards, but it runs analytics on how good you are at keeping up in touch with people via email. And so you can categorize in terms of who, who you do a good job at and who is in your top group that you want to reply to quickly. One of the things that I do, and I'm thinking of writing a book called The Art of Gift Giving because I just think it's a lost art. I write a lot of handwritten cards and I give a lot of, of personal, really personalized gifts um, to people. I'm in this incredibly advantageous position where I travel around the world a lot and I have an amazing database of INSEAD alum. And so I make it a point to, to reach out to people I've met or would like to meet and invite them to coffee or ask them, you know, I'm in a position where I've never been to Caracas. So uh, I can send out a mail and say, hey, can you recommend a place for lunch or dinner? And usually they're happy to take me out, which is fantastic, or to show me around, which is the best kind of networking I've, I've ever done. The other thing that I do is I really try to be authentic and know my limits. There is nothing I dislike more or that will turn me off more than if I feel that someone's trying to be my friend 
but I know they don't really like me. They just think I'm going to be useful for them. And so it's fine to have people in your Rolodex that you might want to reach out to, to ask something for, but you're not want to, you know, you don't want to be their friend, but I absolutely don't develop friendships or try to develop friendships with people. I don't feel I have a genuine connection with. So that leaves me also more time to devote to the people who I do have a genuine connection with. And so it becomes a real relationship and not just a contact. Philosophically, one piece of advice that I would give is think about networking in terms of making a lot of friends and, and doing everything you can to help those friends as often as you can. Oftentimes it's, it's as simple as facilitating an introduction. Oftentimes it's just a matter of just meeting people regardless of their station in life, whether they're, you know, a CEO that you are hoping is one day is going to hire you, or maybe it's a, you know, a student who one day, you know, you're going to help them, but just getting to know them. And when you think of them, if, if you see something where, Hey, you know, I thought you'd like this, that kind of a thing, if it's genuine, if it's authentic, and if it's truly useful to them or, or facilitating an introduction, I do that all the time. I'll just, I have two friends. I say, you guys have to talk to each other down the road. If I do need something from them one day, career wise or, or personally, or whatever I've helped them, they're probably that much more likely to reach out to me, to respond to me and help me. If we can kind of build this team where we're all helping each other philosophically, that's how I would approach it. The student perspective to close. I think the only other thing that I would add is that for me, before going getting into the MBA program, I essentially hung out with my eight best friends and it was just everyone rehashing a lot of the same information. And so what I've learned from being in the program is that it's also really important to seek out people that are different than you or maybe run in different circles so that you can access different types of information. You have access to different circles as well. And it's a way of expanding your own social circle. So not just being comfortable and staying in contact with the people that you are most comfortable with and that you've always kicked it with. So what's necessary in being able to accomplish that is having a good sense of what your social network is and who your contacts are and who you tend to spend a lot of time with and then recognizing where those holes are. Again, a thousand thanks and a round of applause for our guests. This has been the second annual MBA panel, standing out among the outstanding recession, competition, and business school admissions. For more information, a transcript of this show, or to register for your bi-weekly MBA podcast, visit mbapodcaster.com. Look for us on Twitter and Facebook to get the latest news and insight in the world of business schools. This is MBA Podcaster. I'm Diana Jordan. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned next time when we explore another topic of interest in your quest for an MBA.